0: This is What Really Happened. Executive produced by Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewirtz, and in association with Cadence 13. It's written and hosted by me, Andrew Jenks. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Andrew Jenks. Before we begin, I'd like to point out that this story contains strong language and graphic and potentially disturbing content. Discretion is strongly advised.
1: My name is Allison Turcos, and I'm 31 years old. It was Friday, October 13th, 2017. It was a Friday night going into a Saturday. I had a friend's birthday party, and I, you know, had a great dinner. I'm catching up with friends. It was awesome. I took a really great mirror selfie um, in the bathroom of this great bar called Hot Bird, which is in Brooklyn. And I was just having a really great night. And these two friends and I leave this bar called Hoppard, and we go to a bar in Crown Heights called Franklin Park. We order a drink, and we sit in this booth, and it's just a normal night. And then I start to sort of like hit a wall. I'm tired. I'm not engaging in conversation because I've just like, I'm done. There's a decision that's sort of collectively made amongst the three of us that I'm gonna go home. They're gonna stay out, I'm gonna go home. I open up my Lyft app to order a lift. We walk into the courtyard and the sort of outdoor area. The car door opens and I get in. And we say goodnight and the car door closes. And I start what I assume is going to be a 15 to 17 minute ride home, which is approximately three miles from the neighborhood of Crown Heights to the neighborhood of Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And we leave and we take a left onto Bedford Avenue. And Bedford Avenue is a straight shot from Crown Heights to Williamsburg. Uh, There's like no turns, it's just there. Once we're on Bedford, I sort of close my eyes and just like lean back into the seat. And I'm like, cool, we're on our way. I'm jolted awake when we go over this huge bump. And all of a sudden, when I open up my eyes, I can see the Manhattan skyline. And immediately my first thought is, this shouldn't be happening. We should be going nowhere near Manhattan to take the ride that I'd originally agreed to. And all of a sudden I realize that we're going over the Manhattan Bridge. And so my first thought is, this dude is just trying to scam me out of like 20 or 30 bucks. He's just gonna take the long way and take the Manhattan Bridge into Manhattan and then we're gonna go over the Williamsburg Bridge. And I feel this sense of like, oh, like he probably needs 20 or 30 bucks, definitely more than I need it, fine. At the first red light, I'm just gonna jump out. I'm just gonna jump out of the car, whatever money he's gonna charge me, I don't care, I'll hop on a yellow cab, I'll get on the subway, fine. So we stop at the first red light and I go to get out of the passenger side back door. And I can't, and it's not because it's locked and I'm trying and panic slowly starts to set in. And so I'm like, okay, at the next red light, we're just going to get out of the other door. There's another door. You can do this. And so I shift my body in an attempt to not be, to not draw attention to myself. Driver's just going to go. And at the next red light, I attempt to open the second door, which is the driver's side passenger door. And at the first attempt, it doesn't open. And that is when, like, sheer and utter panic starts to set in. And so I'm trying to open this door, and the sounds that I can remember are my breathing being so heavy and me thinking, I'm going to fucking break this handle. I'm not a strong person, but that's all that I can think of is, like, get me the fuck out of this car. And then finally, the driver pulls a gun on me. And it is so close to my face. And the only words that come out of his mouth are, shut the fuck up. And in that moment, my hands, both of them, just go up parallel to my shoulders. And I just lean back, and my entire body hits the back of the seat. And I think it's important to note here that there was never a chance for me to call 911. There was never a chance for me to yell for someone. There was never a chance for me to do anything because one, I didn't have my phone. The driver had my phone at this point, but I was never looking for my phone. Like I was too busy on using all of my energy to get out of that car. I then later realized that he had enacted the child safety locks and that's why I couldn't get out of the car. And... At that moment, I have no idea where we're going. And the only things that I'm thinking or realizing is I'm not going to get home and I'm most likely never going to get home alive. So we continue to leave New York City and to go through the Holland Tunnel into New Jersey. So none of my surroundings look or appear to look familiar to me He picked me up at 2.30 in the morning. So by now, it's maybe 2.45, 2.50. The streets are desolate and empty. When we're in the Holland Tunnel, the question that I'm asking myself is like, should I scream? Should I attempt to knock on the window? Is he driving with one hand and holding the gun with the other? If I do this, will he kill me? So then the only answer that I have is just like, don't fucking move. Don't move. Don't say anything. I'm trying to make eye contact with passing cars, but of course, you know, now I think about it all the time and I'm like, of course, no one was going to look at me and be like, oh, wow, she's probably being held at gunpoint. We should do something because that's just not a thing, you know, like your eyes, you, my eyes cannot tell you that I'm being trafficked and held at gunpoint. And so we arrive at our destination and there are two men there waiting for us. As we enter the space, the driver puts the car in park and gets out of the car and has a conversation with these two men. And of course, every single scenario is running through my head of like, okay, are they gonna kill me? Are they gonna bring me somewhere else? Is he dropping me off? And and it's just not helpful. And the three of them come over to the car And while holding the gun, the driver opens the back door and forces me to take off my clothes. And I comply because there's no other decision that you have in that moment. So he forces me to take off my clothes. He forces me to lay down in the back of the car. And then the three of them take turns raping me. And it is, it makes me so sad for myself for a million reasons, but I think also because this is not the first time that I've been sexually assaulted in my life. I was raped for the first time in my life at the age of 16. And I was raped for the second time at the age of 18. The second time was my first week of college. And I never told anyone in my life. I never told my parents. And I never told friends at school. And it wasn't until I saw what was happening during the resurgence of the Me Too movement and people starting to share their stories that I started to slowly tell my really close friends and some of my family members what what, my experience with prior sexual assault The whole day of that Friday, um, it was the middle of October, and it was 2017. The Harvey Weinstein news had broke. I was like, the news is so triggering for me. And so this particular Friday, I had just hit a wall. And my ability to disassociate is astoundingly good because I have been sexually assaulted twice before. I attempt to leave my body. I attempt to leave the space, not physically, but mentally and emotionally. And so for approximately like 20 to 23 minutes, these three men take turn, multiple turns. And they're cheering each other on. They're high-fiving each other. They're saying things to each other or to me in an attempt to make it appear as if the forceful sex is consensual. There are three men versus one woman. The amount of energy that I spent attempting to get out of that car, the amount of energy that left my body when a gun got pulled on me. I thought about running, but if I ran, there would have been a bullet in the back of my head. Eventually, they decide that they've had enough or that they're done, um, but they stop. And the driver uh, forces me to put my clothes back on and to get into the car. He closes the door. The three of them like leave that immediate space, go off and have a conversation. And the driver gets back in the car and starts driving. And not a word is spoken. And we enter New York City again. And when you come back through the Holland Tunnel, there's this sign It's on the left side, when you come back through the tunnel into New York, and it says, Welcome to New York. And I remember the minute that I saw the sign, my first thought was, at least when they find my body, I'll be closer to home. Which is so sad. Never in my life at the age of 29 did I ever want to fucking think that. And he, the driver, brings me back to the apartment in Williamsburg that was my intended destination. And he parks along the sidewalk. And he just says, have a good night. And he just says, have a good night. And I just sit in the back of the car and I don't even try to touch the door. And my assumption is that he has to open the door, as I've tried before, and I can't open it. And we sit there for, like, three to six seconds. And then I finally just try it, and it opens. And I realize that during the assault at one point in time, he must have disengaged the child safety locks. And I get out of the car and close the door and just walk into the apartment thinking if I run, if I go to a bodega, if I do something, again, like, this dude has a motherfucking gun. Like, he's going to shoot me. And I just go into the apartment. So I got home around, like, I think, like, 4 o'clock-ish. I wake up around 11. And I text my best friend Morgan. She was at a wedding. And she's, like, asking me about the night. And... I sort of say to her, like, I went home alone. When I wake up, I have no memories of what happened. No memories of getting home. I'm just like, okay, I got home. Great. I did not black out from alcohol that night. I definitely had a few drinks, but not to the point of blacking out. I cannot move my body from bed. Like, my body feels as if I ran a marathon or maybe 70 I can't even get up to go to the bathroom or, like, to order takeout. I can't do anything. And I'm, like, sleeping on and off. And finally, around 7, 7.30, I get up to go take a shower. And I can't even stand up in the shower. I have to sit on the floor of the shower, of the bathtub. And... I can't wash my hair, I can't wash my body. I'm just like needing the scalding hot water to touch my body. And I sit in there for like 15, 20 minutes and then finally I'm like, you can't sit here forever. And so I leave, I gather my things and as I'm walking downstairs, I open up my Lyft app. And the first thing that I notice is that um, the total ride of my Lyft was over $100, which never happens, for me at least. Um. And my brain isn't functioning at the same rate that it usually is. So I immediately, like, toggle over to the map, and I see that the map had taken me to an entirely different state. Not even a different borough, but an entirely different state. And the first thing that I do is I screenshot it, and I send it to two of my best friends, Morgan and Nico. And the only thing that I say to them is, WTF, this was my ride home last night. And I'm just like standing on a corner near the Montrose L-stop. And I'm just like, what the fuck? I can't get in a yellow cab. I don't don't have the energy to walk down subway steps. I don't know what to do. Maybe 15 minutes goes by and I'm like, okay, this is not a solution. I cannot move onto the street corner in Williamsburg. I get into a yellow cab and I file a written complaint with Lyft. And I said something to the effect of my driver took me to New Jersey last night when I was going from one place in Brooklyn to the other, that was it. Less than 10 to 15 minutes pass, and I start to realize that day when I'd used the bathroom, I had pretty severe vaginal bleeding and vaginal discomfort. Things were still not adding up. So immediately I elevate it from a written complaint within Lyft to a phone call. And I talk to someone on their trust and safety team And so I say to them, this is what happened. I wanted to go from point A to point B. My driver took me into a different borough and crossed state lines. And Lyft's response is, we will charge you for what the initial ride would have been, which would be $12.81. We will refund you $93.99, and we will unpair you from the driver. He will remain on the app, but we will unpair you from the driver. And I'm trying to say to them, Like, what do you think happened? And Lyft says, well, it's pretty evident to us that he dropped you off, didn't end the ride, and then he continued driving. And to me, my response to them was, if you look at the map, it's incredibly evident that he did not drop me off. There was no clear line from point A to point B. And then Lyft just says, well, no, you're wrong. You either didn't update your Lyft app or your phone wasn't connected to your network Or you didn't update your iOS system. I have an iPhone. And I was like, okay, I'm not a tech person. I know nothing. We hang up the phone and it's done. I still didn't have memories of the assault or of the night. The next day, I picked up my best friend Morgan from Grand Central and we're in a cab. And I would say it's less that I remember the actual assault happening and... It's more that Morgan is basically helping me to, like, come to my own realization that something terrible and horrific happened. Morgan is providing a safer and supportive space for me and is basically helping me to, like, pull apart that shame. And she's not telling me, girl, we got to go to the police. She's basically just saying... I think that what you think happened, something more terrible might have happened. And things start to connect for me, not memory-wise, but within my body. And my first initial thought internally is like, how the fuck did you let this happen again? And there's a lot of self-blame because I had been sexually assaulted previously. And there's a lot of self-blame, there's a lot of victim blame, like you did this. How did you let this happen? Not for the other person. At this point in time, the only thing that I've reported to Lyft is a kidnapping. I never use the word sexual assault. My final email to Lyft is on Sunday night at around like 7.30 my time. And I say to Lyft, I'm considering filing a police report. What does this look like in collaboration with your company? and Lyft never responds. On Sunday night, I made an online appointment with my primary care physician for an internal exam, and through the online portal, I had indicated that I had been sexually assaulted. I had made the appointment for 11 a.m. on Monday, October 16th. I had never reported a rape before. I know in my brain that you should go to a hospital and have a rape kit done. But it just seemed so intense and heavy to me. And so I thought, I'll just like go to my regular doctor. I'll have an internal exam done. I'll have a pap smear done and everything will be fine. Because I think to me, it was the idea of like, having a rape kit done makes this so real. And so um, I was at my best friend Morgan's house. Um, I slept over there. I woke up at 9 a.m. to a phone call from my doctor's office. I don't know who this woman is, but I swear to God, she's the greatest woman alive. And she called me and basically said, I see that you've made an appointment and that you've indicated that you were sexually assaulted. And she's like, we don't have the ability to do a forensic rape kit here. You need to go to a hospital and have a rape kit done. And I lost it. So in the back of my head, I knew. Like, I knew that I needed to, but having that validated and affirmed by a random stranger, I think, just like, this is all happening. Like, this is... And I think for me, I still was engaging in a lot of self-blame, and I was like, like, third time. Like, what the fuck is, you know, wrong with you? And so then... Again, this woman was phenomenal. And she had said to me, Do you still have the clothes that you were wearing that night? And I said, Yes. And she was like, Put them in a brown paper bag immediately. Don't put them in a plastic bag. She was like, DNA will be better preserved in a brown paper bag than anything. And I'm just like sitting on Morgan's bed and I'm sobbing hysterically. And I'm like crying so hard that I can't get a word out. And I just said to Morgan, I was like, we have to go to the hospital. Um, And so I got dressed and Morgan and I walked from her apartment at Park Slope to uh, New York Presbyterian, Brooklyn Methodist. And I'm just carrying a brown paper bag of the clothes that I was raped in. And we walk into the hospital and there's like one or two people in front of us And then the male physician who was in charge of the ER came in and asked if we had contacted the police. And I said no. The way that he framed it to me was, I understand that you're hesitant about reporting, but it's always easier to move backwards than it is to move forward in the sense of if you report today, we will have access to DNA, we will have access to evidence, we'll have access to video, to all of these things. And in three days or three months, you can pull back and say, I don't want to do this anymore. But if in three days or three months or three years, if you decide to report, we will not have access to any of those things. And so he was like, you are in control of this. And I want to really like just say that right now. But it's easier for everyone if you do this. And I was like, okay, like, let's, let's call the cops. For someone who either has never had a rape kit done or has never had a loved one had a rape kit done. A rape kit is the physical manifestation of your body being a crime scene. And what that means is that they want to access that evidence as quickly as possible because they are losing time. And for me, I had showered twice, which is detrimental to evidence. Anything that was going to be on my body or found on my body was going to, you know, incredibly helpful but also a lot of it had been lost and then we start the process of the rape kit and what was really important for me is that morgan stayed with me the entire time and i like i don't think that i really did a solid job of checking in with morgan to be like are you okay with watching your best friend get a rape kit done because that's a lot of secondary trauma but she sat next to me the entire time and held my hand the entire time. And there is not enough thank yous in the world to ever describe that because having a rape kit done for me is incredibly, it's secondary trauma, it's incredibly triggering. She was so fucking great that day. I think sometimes people always say like the, that survivors self are, are strong and brave, but I always just want to be like, you don't know what our community goes through. And I think like Morgan in particular that day. And then like the kit gets done and you have to sign it out to, it's like a hospital staff signs it to the victim and then the victim signs it to the cops. And so we walk out of the hospital. I'm carrying my rape kit. We get into the back of a cop car and we get escorted to the Brooklyn Special Victims Division. I gave a statement to six different cops. None of them knew what rideshare companies were. None of them knew what Lyft was. And so Morgan and I are having to be like, okay, so you order a car. It's like a cab. There is an app. And then the first detective, her name was Maria Quinones. She comes up to Morgan and I and says that she wants to talk to me. And Maria just like leads me into an interview room And one of the first questions that she asks me is, has anyone checked inside of your body to see if your IUD is still there? Which I don't think is an investigative question that any police officer should ever ask, particularly someone who's just had a rape kit done. And then she asked me why I'm in therapy. I'd been in therapy for, I think, like almost two years prior to the assault. Um, One, because I believe everyone should be in therapy. It's incredibly helpful. And she was like, why are you in therapy? Explain to me what talk therapy is, how is this helping you? In my opinion now, upon like pretty deep reflection, I think that she was attempting to like blame me for this as if like I had made this up. The worst thing, the most egregious thing that I think happened that day is um, the hospital did not take photos of my body. Whether it was an oversight, I'm unsure. There was bruising on my legs, particularly on the outside of my knees from what I now remember is the rapist pulling my knees apart and my knees hitting the metal frames of the car doors. I'd indicated this to Maria Quinones at the NYPD. She asked Morgan and I to go into an NYPD staff bathroom where I took my pants off and my best friend took photos of the bruises on my body left by my rapists. That should never happen. That should never happen. Like my best friend and I should not be bonded over that ever. And then Morgan and I went out and had a burger and I had a glass of red wine because I was like, what the fuck just happened? Then like October, November, I don't hear from my detective at all. I sent her an email on November 8th asking for some sort of an update. She says that they're still investigating. Fine. December 3rd, me and Maria Quinonez have an in-person interview. She informs me of some of my rape kit results, which basically is just that my toxicology report came back negative, which we all assumed because I was 60 hours out. And then um, at that point in time, I had zero memories, and she confirmed that I was in the car the whole time, which Lyft had said I wasn't. The NYPD confirms this. And then in March, March 18th, I had a meeting with the NYPD, which is where they confirmed that there were multiple perpetrators. I don't think it's possible for me to measure the amount of evidence that Maria Quinones lost. To name a few, I would say video evidence, memories in the sense of my own, the two people who put me in the car, friends who I had spoken to, But I do not think that it is quantifiable to measure the amount of evidence that she lost. In April, I filed an official um, Internal Affairs Bureau complaint against Maria Quinones for her gross neglect to do her job. I was assigned new detectives like April 23rd of 2018. I met with them, I think, potentially the next day or like Friday. They did like a two and a half hour trauma-informed interview and that started to bring up memories of like there were leaves on the ground, I was wearing sandals that night, like things like that in terms of like what did it smell like, what did you hear, do you remember these men's voices, like things like that, things that Maria just never even asked me. That started to bring back memories, I started to do work in therapy to help me bring back memories. June 28th I have a meeting with the cops where I tell them I remember a gun. And I remember where we were on Canal Street when he pulled the gun on me. Flash forward to July 12th of 2018, I have a conversation with the cops about something different. I wanted to file a Freedom of Information Act to get my own case files. And on the phone, it's a Thursday, and the cops are saying, you are starting to remember enough. We want to do a reenactment. And I said, okay, when? And they were like, within the next two weeks. Like, when are you free? And my immediate response was just like, this is the most important thing in my life. I'm free whenever. And they were like, how about tonight? And I was like, okay, what does this look like? And they had basically said, wear something comfortable. And they were really transparent. And they were like, we know that you probably want to bring a support person with you. And we would love for you to have that. But we have to recreate what that night looked like. And you have to be in the backseat by yourself. And so I like went home and I think like watched like a Bravo reality show, which is a huge act of self-care for me. Um, and I texted a few of my friends and was like, this is happening tonight. I don't know what self-care or what sort of like love and support I'm going to need. And the like aftermath being like tonight and tomorrow um, and made a joke about how like you can't go on to like Cosmo.com. And be like, what do you wear Do your rape and kidnap reenactment? Because that doesn't exist. Um, and they picked me up outside of Franklin Park. And there's just these like two dudes in suits and an unmarked police car. And I'm like, oh, they're there for me. And we, I get back into the back of the car and they're like, here's what it's going to look like. And they basically were like, we're not going to talk to you. And if like the minute that we get on Bedford, like close your eyes and like don't pay attention. And if the radio is too loud or if it's too quiet or if we should turn it off, they're like, we literally want to recreate everything that happened that night. And so we start going and we turn down Bedford and then we're somewhere near like like Ashland or like in like Fort Greene. And my breathing gets really heavy and I'm holding back tears. And it's like, I'm too afraid to say something. And my detectives, who I've been working with for quite a few months now, April to July, start to sense things in my body. And they literally just like stop the car in the middle of the street and just throw the sirens on. And they're like, Allison, do you like want to tell us what's going on? And then I just start sobbing. And I'm like, this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened. And they're like writing everything down. And then we get to the Manhattan Bridge. And the minute that we hit the bump, I like jump out of the car and I'm like, this is where we're going and this, and then like every single step of the reenactment, everything came out and it was just like, all of my memories came back. The exact route over the Manhattan Bridge through the Holland Tunnel into Jersey City, the exact location of where the rapes occurred back into Manhattan to the apartment in Williamsburg. And then the NYPD dropped me off at my apartment. And they say, we need you in the precinct first thing tomorrow morning because we need you to do a new written statement, to go through mugshots. We need to do new witness profiles. Before the reenactment, I had remembered less than 10% of the memories. As I'm getting out of the car and walking into my own apartment, I would say 98 to 99% of memories come back. And then the night of the reenactment was when it was determined that the case would be transferred to the FBI because when you kidnap someone across state lines, it's an automatic federal offense. I filed a lawsuit against the New York Police Department on January 31st of 2019. And I am suing the NYPD for what is called injunctive relief. And the non-legal way to say that is for systemic change. I want the system to change because I never want another victim to be treated the way that I was. So like my individual law enforcement officer was not good at her job, but who are the people in decision-making powers that allow her to remain in her job? In terms of Lyft, the thing that's really important to me is that we think about this and we frame this in terms of systems. And to me, the thing that I want to hold Lyft accountable for is systemic change. I believe right now the current count is 25 other women who have filed lawsuits against Lyft. And every one of them, I think, is incredible. I am inspired by them. They're one of the reasons why I chose to do this. Many of them have done this and they remain anonymous. They're filing as Jane Doe's. Um, I chose to... Um, put my name on the lawsuit and to be public because I think it's harder for someone to ignore me when I'm sitting in front of you when you can see my face and my name. I am not seeking any sort of money from Lyft. I want to see systemic change. I want to sit down and have a conversation with their board. I want to sit down and have a conversation with their CEO. I want to talk to the people who are making these apps because they say that a 911 number within the Lyft app is going to like save all of our lives. It would not have, changed the outcome of my night that night because the driver had my phone. And even if I did have my phone, there's no way that I could have dialed 911 from the back with a gun in the car. I acknowledge that this is not going to be like a one-size-fits-all problem. But I think that with Lyft, if you're going to say that the safety of your customers is your number one priority, I would love to sit down with you and be at the table. I'd love to sort of share my story with people in positions of power at Lyft and to say, like, let's come together and really if you say that safety is a number one priority, like, let's make it happen. The current standing of the criminal case, which I can't speak a ton to, is no one has been arrested. I can't say whether they're waiting for something bigger, whether they're just really busy, but I think it's also the idea of when you have a crime of this magnitude there are many players in the game. And if you are looking to solve the problem, it's sort of like a chess game. There's a lot of pieces at play. And so my assumption is that you have to be strategic. And I can only assume that law enforcement is being strategic in terms of making an arrest, who they're going to arrest, at what time they're going to arrest. Um, Not all of those details are shared with me. I think it's completely fair to say that they're looking for other evidence against other people, against the multiple men who committed this crime against me. And it's also the idea of the crime that was committed against me was premeditated. There was a lot of thought that went into it. All of these things had to be thought out. It's not just that like randomly on an early Saturday morning at 2.30 in the morning, we're just going to pick up this girl at Franklin Park and it's all going to happen. No. You have to think about it in terms of like a spider web. How big is it? How big does it go out? And that's a huge problem to solve. And I think it's a great question that a lot of people ask is, I handed the NYPD all of this evidence on a silver platter. His name, his photo, his New York City Taxi and Limo Commission license number, the make and model of the car, the license plate number, and had a capable NYPD detective had the case from the jump, would it be somewhere different? I don't know. And I think it's hard to swallow I'm sure for the general public, it's hard to swallow that this person remained on the Lyft app and was driving for many months. It sort of goes back to the question of, like, why people don't report. And it's like, look at this miscarriage of justice. And I'm only one person.
0: You may remember during my interview with Allison that she said this about what happened while getting raped.
1: My ability to disassociate is astoundingly good because I have been sexually assaulted twice before, and so I'm—I attempt to leave my body, I attempt to leave the space, not physically but mentally and emotionally.
0: I didn't know what the word disassociate meant in this context. So I've talked to doctors and experts in the sexual assault field. I also wanted to better understand how Allison's brain did not remember the rape until six months afterwards. How could you simply forget something so horrific? turns out I was very naive. To begin to understand, you have to learn the meaning of disassociation.
2: Dissociation can really include multiple different components, and it probably is experienced a little bit differently by different people.
0: This is Dr. Zoe Peterson, Director of the Sexual Assault Research Initiative at the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University.
2: Dissociation is a psychological process that sometimes happens to people during traumatic events, especially if they're traumatic events that are associated with very high levels of fear and feelings of helplessness. So during dissociation, people often feel kind of removed or separated from their own bodies and from what's happening around them. Sometimes people kind of describe it like an out-of-body experience. And so it seems to be the mind's way of protecting the individual from those really terrifying emotions that can happen during a traumatic event. So if the person can't physically escape, it's almost like dissociation allows them to psychologically escape. But there can be things like reduced awareness of one's surroundings or sometimes a really narrowing of the perceptual focus, so just noticing details and not the bigger picture. There can be a sense that someone doesn't really quite feel like themselves or they don't feel like what's happening to them is real. They may experience kind of a numbing of their emotional reactions and often there's a sense of altered time perception. So individuals who've never had a history of trauma might have experienced just a kind of very small taste of this if they've ever had for example highway hypnosis. You know so you're you're driving along a uh, long distance on the highway and suddenly you realize you've driven 20 miles and you don't remember what you've passed and it seems like no time has passed. You can also get this if you've really been very deeply absorbed in a movie or book. So if you're you're so focused on what's happening in the movie or book that you're not aware of what's happening in the room around you. So that can give people just a little taste of of what dissociation can be like, although that is certainly a a very mild version of it.
0: You may remember that when Allison had a sense something went wrong, she also said that she was upset at herself. And my first
1: Initial thought internally is like, how the fuck did you let this happen again? And there's a lot of self-blame.
0: Said Dr. Peterson.
2: So often victims blame themselves because looking back, they feel like, I should have done more. I should have fought harder. I should have uh, yelled louder. I should have somehow gotten out of that situation. And I think dissociation is one of the reasons that people have trouble doing those things. You know, if, if they're sort of removed from the situation, they may not react as strongly as they wish they had. But I think the problem with kind of blaming themselves for that is that that was not their fault that they dissociated. That's something that their mind does sort of in the moment to protect them. And so it's not something they can control. It's not something they should, could avoid. And it really was, it was sort of their mind doing what their mind believed was best for them in that situation. Most uh, reports of sexual assault do come quite some time after the sexual assault. Some individuals never report their sexual assault, and many individuals don't report their sexual assault for years and years. And when we talk about reporting, there's different kinds of reporting, too. There's, you know, telling your friends and family members what happens to you, and then there's reporting to the police. And actually, the vast majority of sexual assault victims never report to the police. But even those that do report to police or friends and family. There's often a delay from that. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. One is that, you know, often victims of sexual assault don't want to remember or talk about the experience, especially shortly after it. They're really trying to avoid those negative thoughts and feelings that go along with that. But there's also, you know, kind of needing to process it and decide, you know, what is this that happened to me? Is this really a sexual assault? You know, they have to get past some of that self-blame. Maybe it wasn't a sexual assault because I did something to cause it. So I would say there's absolutely no link between the speed at which someone reports a sexual assault and how real or genuine that report is at all.
0: The memory is able to pick up on certain things and not others. Remember when Allison recalled that bump? The
1: minute that we hit the bump, I, like, jump out of the car. And I'm like, this is where we're going. and And then, like... Every single
0: step of the reenactment, everything came out. Said Dr. Peterson.
2: It does seem like dissociation during a traumatic event does seem to have some impact on individuals' memories of their traumatic event. And we know that what's really common among victims of sexual assault is often that there'll be one image or one kind of sensory memory that's like deeply burned into their mind, but then they can't fully recall all the details surrounding that, and the ordering of events may be a little disorganized.
0: During my interview with Dr. Peterson, she did say something that reminded me of the fact that Allison had been sexually assaulted twice before. It seems
2: like sometimes when people have a prior trauma history, they may, then when faced with a new trauma, be somewhat more likely to dissociate just because that's that's kind of a practiced coping mechanism that they've developed.
0: I thought it was important to reach out to both the NYPD and Lyft. In response to an inquiry about the status of Maria Quinones. the NYPD said, quote, The NYPD takes sexual assault and rape cases extremely seriously and urges anyone who has been a victim to file a police report so we can perform a comprehensive investigation and offer support and services to survivors. The NYPD will decline comment on pending litigation. They also referred me to a New York Daily News article written by the Chief of Special Victims Division, Judith Harrison, titled The Truth About NYPD Sex Crimes Policing, a victim-centered approach featuring improved training and new facilities. Chief Harrison writes at length about changes that have been made at the NYPD in the last year. I also reached out to Lyft for comment. They said, What these riders describe is awful, and something no one should have to endure. We constantly work to improve the platform, which is why we have invested in new features, protocols, and policies to protect our riders and drivers. This year alone, we've launched 14 new safety features, including daily continuous background check monitoring, in-app emergency assistance, and mandatory feedback for any ride rated less than four stars. We have also partnered with Rain, the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization, to roll out required sexual violence prevention education, end quote. They also either informed or reminded me of five additional items. First, this case was not initially reported as a safety incident. It was reported as an indirect route where the passenger, Allison, asked for a refund. Second, Lyft said, they first became aware that this was a safety incident when the Wall Street Journal published an article on May 8, 2018. Third, Lyft pointed out that they received a subpoena from law enforcement on May 14, 2018, six months after the ride took place. They complied with the subpoena and worked with law enforcement for over a year as they investigated. Fourth, since this incident was reported and occurred in 2017, Lyft has taken numerous steps to improve both how they responded to reports and the policies and procedures to protect against them. Fifth and last, Lyft noted that the driver passed the New York City's TLC's background check and was permitted to drive. After asking, I was also informed that the driver has been permanently deactivated from Lyft. In my opinion, I think this is a story about understanding disassociation and understanding just how brave it is for people like Alison Turcos to come forward and tell their story. Going into this episode, I wasn't familiar with disassociation and the reasons why it can take time for victims and survivors of sexual assault to tell their friends, family, and law enforcement. I want to sincerely thank Allison Turcos for coming on our podcast to share her story. If you are a victim of sexual assault or know a friend in need of help, you can reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. We'll also put up more information on our website, Jenkspod.com This episode was edited by me, Bill Schultz, and Perry Crowell. On the next What Really Happened, it's one of the most prestigious horse tracks in the world, but suddenly, 30 horses died and left everyone wondering, what really happened? If you like the podcast, I'd humbly ask you to subscribe, rate, and review. It actually can make a big difference. For any other feedback, you can reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram, Facebook, at Andrew Jenks, or go to JenksPod.com for more information on the sources for this podcast.